This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. We're going to come to 2 Timothy 4 now. And in 2 Timothy 4, something happens that, you know, I knew when I read these four chapters on study break two years ago. I knew when I came to this day, I thought, man, I don't know what God's going to do when I have to tackle this passage because I've avoided it because it's hard. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hey there, welcome to Today with Jeff Fines. My name's Aaron, and we're coming to the last message in this series looking at the six books in the Bible that have only four chapters. Those books are Ruth, Philippians, Jonah, Malachi, Colossians, and today's episode, Pastor Jeff dives into 2 Timothy. There's great words of encouragement and challenge in the four chapters of each of these books. Turn to 2 Timothy 4 as Pastor Jeff starts his message, and be prepared, he's in rapid-fire mode. Turn over to 2 Timothy 4. Let's go now and really engage. I'm really asking you to forget about whatever you've been thinking about, what you got to do after. Just say, you know, I'm going to force myself for the next 40 minutes. Boy, I hope it's only 40 minutes. Then I am really going to engage because you, you came to learn, right? You came to go into the scripture, right? You didn't come to hear funny stories or jokes. I got those too, but you came for the word, right? Okay. Imagine this. In Matthew chapter 17, don't turn there. I'm going to summarize it. Matthew chapter 17, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. Anytime the disciples are listed in the Bible, Peter's always listed first because he's the one in charge. He's kind of the, the leader of the disciples, and James and John are right behind him. Jesus takes them up onto a mountain that later will be called the Mountain of Transfiguration. And we don't know exactly what happened, but the Shekinah glory of God, I mean, somehow God peeled back the flesh. Remember, Jesus is... God in the flesh, he's 100% man, 100% God. And if that's a problem for you, that's because you're a finite. You're limited by time and space, so of course you can't understand that. But God is not limited by anything other than what he limits himself. He, there is self-limitation, so when Jesus came to planet Earth, even though he was in essence deity, now stay with me, I told you, rapid fire, in essence deity, he gave up some of the privileges associated with being deity so he could live the life you and I have been called to live. That's why in Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 4, he, he what? Experienced all things as we experience them, and yet he did not sin. He was made like us in all ways. Well, if Jesus operated as God when he was on planet Earth, well, that temptation's not fair. I don't get to operate as God. I operate in the flesh. So somehow on the mountain... The flesh or the humanity of Jesus was pulled back and Peter, James, and John got to get a glimpse of God, what God, the essence of who Christ really is. In his being, he is God. And they saw it and God just seemed to be talking to Moses and Elijah. I've always wondered, how did Peter and James and John know it was Moses and Elijah? They didn't have any pictures floating around of the guys, right? It must have been a revelation of God, just like God revealed to them Jesus. God revealed to them, this is Moses and Elijah. Peter is so happy by what he saw. He's so thrilled, he didn't want to come down off the mountain. Would you? 
He said, let me build some tabernacles up here. The, the Greek word is actually tents or houses, oikos. Let me build some houses up here. And, and Jesus, you can live in one. And Moses and Elijah. And we'll just stand here and watch you do that every day. You can just do this again and again. That's Peter. He, you know, he's not thinking. You got to eat. You got to go down and survive. He thinks nothing's better than this. Let's go. Now, as great as that experience was, I want to read to you something that Peter will write later on in his epistle, okay? As great as that experience was, and to Peter, it was probably the greatest experience he ever had. I'm sure it was. Later on, he writes something that is astounding. When he writes his epistle, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, here's what he says. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Yeah, it's sacred now, right? We also, this is, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. Some of your translations will say, we have something more certain. More certain than what? More certain than Peter's experience when he was an eyewitness to Jesus' Shekinah glory. And you will do well, he says, to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Verse 20, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture, this is the Greek word graphe. He says, nothing has been written. This is scripture. None of it came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets through, though human rather, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Important Greek phrase there. Here's what it means. It takes the imagery of a, a person who is driving a horse-driven carriage. And the phrase means that as long as the driver is staying on the road, no problem. But if he starts to veer off, then he'll take the reins and place the horses back on the path. So, and there's so much here, but let me, let me summarize it for you. Peter is saying this, that thing that happened in Matthew 17, you know, he didn't say Matthew 17 because Matthew 17 wasn't written yet, but that thing that happened up on the mountain, that was so cool. But have you ever had an experience that a week later you think to yourself, did I really see that? What happened? Over in 1 Peter, Peter writes to the church. He says, you know what? I have something, we have something more certain than even that experience. What is it? That which is written, the graphe, the word of God. So by the time the apostles are planning the churches, they continue to emphasize, be careful of allowing your emotions or your feelings to determine truth. Even your experiences for all of those are subject to the objective word of God, that which is written. So much so that they said when these riders were riding, see, you remember the horse-driven carriage? They were using their personalities. That's why they're different riding styles. They were using their research. Luke says he, he, was, uh, he was gathering testimony to Theophilus. But he said, make no mistake, the final product belongs to God. And it's not through some kind of dictation where you're on the mountain foaming at the mouth. It's that... God allows them to use their resources of the eyewitness accounts, but the Holy Spirit is responsible for the final product. Now, why is that important? We're gonna to come to 2 Timothy 4 now. And in 2 Timothy 4, something happens 
that, you know, I knew when I read these four chapters on study break two years ago, I knew when I came to this day, I thought, man, I don't know what God's gonna do when I have to tackle this passage because I've avoided it because it's hard. So I have written the original language for you and I didn't show you, I'm not doing this to show you I know Greek, okay? I'm doing this because only through showing you the Greek, the middle, the, the present or the uh, uh, active indicative participles or the middle voice, the active voice and the passive voice, only by showing you that, and I'm not gonna take a long time, but I gotta take some time, will you see how this passage packs a powerful punch? Hey, that's four Ps. <laughs> Orators are always looking for that. This passage packs a powerful punch. So Timothy, writing to the church, and these are Christians in Ephesus. He says, and we always get the wrong side first. He starts out by saying this, preach the word, Keruxon to Logon, from Logos. Now, why does he start this way? Well, you know the word preach, proclaim, preach the word. He starts out by reminding the Ephesians because they're into the experiential, okay? And to the flesh, the experiences of the flesh. So he starts out by saying, Timothy, and this is Paul to Timothy. Timothy, you're young. And you know, they say that when you're older, you're more fierce. You know, a lion is never more fierce than when he's about to die. And Paul is in a, a, pr a prison and he, he has a death sentence hanging over his head. He's gonna die. And he sends Timothy this letter. He says, Timothy, preach the word. And he uses logos. And there's a connection here that I never get time. By the way, when I was a teaching pastor at Savannah, I got to do this every Wednesday. And they gave me an hour and a half. Don't worry. I only got about 42 minutes. Here we go. Here we go. Listen now. Paul says to Timothy, preach the word. This word logos, in John chapter one, John says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, the word became flesh. That's a statement of the Trinity, the triune God. Many people struggle with that. I don't know why. The Bible talks about the Trinity and all it's trying to communicate is that God is one being in three persons. One being in three persons. Now, you and I are one being, but we can't be three persons. That's because our being is human. But God's being is divine. And God can do whatever he wants. So God is one being, essential being, in three persons. God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. In the early church, heresies continued to arise out of a misunderstanding of the Trinity. The primary heresy in the New Testament that Paul has to deal with is called Gnosticism. And basically it says this, whatever you do in the flesh doesn't matter, it's only the spirit that matters. So you can participate in whatever you want to in the flesh, because it doesn't matter, just the spirit matters. I don't know how you could possibly separate the two, but they did. The Bible teachers come along, the apostles rather, disciples come along and say, wait a minute, Jesus was fully God, and fully man. They said, no, it's impossible. There's no way God would ever take flesh because flesh is inherently evil. But they had, they had a kind of a, 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 a personal uh, preference here. That is, they wanted to continue to do what they did in the flesh without Christ coming in and changing that. They wanted to affirm that Jesus is the Son of God and I believe in him, but I don't want it to change the way I'm living. I want to do what I want to do in the flesh because I'm going to keep these two separate. And that doctrine of Gnosticism hounded the church all through its early stages. 
So the first thing he says, he comes and he says, preach the word. He's referring to the Logos. Preach the whole word. Preach the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the transformation of the flesh by the Spirit. Timothy, preach the word. And because Ephesus struggled with this idea, he says, and be ready to do so, you've got uh, eucharos and akaros, which is the same word, in season, out of season. But folks, you know what this means? It's not, we, we say in season, out of season, but what it what it means when you put these ideas together, it means in time and out of time, it means when it's popular and when it's not popular. That's what the phrase means. When it costs you something, when it doesn't cost you something. So the word of God is not changing. Culture changes, but the word of God does not. And then he says, as you're teaching people, he uses three Greek words that are progressive. That is, that is they, they are progressive in intensity. Convict, election and rebuke and exhort. I love this word, uh, parakaleison. Uh, uh, okay, so sometimes I have to pause just a little bit. But he's saying, first of all, gently remind them, convict. Say, hey, don't do that. You know, Let's say my buddy Rick Reed out here is doing something he shouldn't do, like throwing his nine iron or something when he gets mad at golf. I'm supposed to go up to him and say, my buddy, don't do that. But the third or fourth time he does it, and he would never do that. I'm just using him as an example. The, the third or fourth time, then I rebuke. Hey, hey, knock it off. And then the third time, strangely enough, I exhort. I say, come on, man. You can do this. I know it's tough. I know you're fighting it, but you've got to win this battle. And then he says, uh, in a passe, which means complete patience. It's a beautiful word here. Macro or macrothumia. It's the patience that God has in the book of Revelation. So he says, the whole idea of telling someone to change is not to throw them out of the church or excommunicate them. The whole reason for gently convicting them, strongly convicting them, exhorting them and encouraging them with great patience is so that they might repent. So you always want to win the back. You don't want to excommunicate them so you can say to them, hey, I told you so. I'm glad things are going bad for you. I'm so happy about that. You ever met somebody that's glad when someone sins and don't repent, doesn't repent? Well, they're there. Now, got to quick, got to move quickly. This is where it gets interesting. Then he looks at him and he says, there's going to come a time, and this is where the voices start. There will come a time, Estai Gar Kairos, a time will come, a season will come, a season will come. When sound teaching, they will not endure. That's, uh, didaskaleo is the same kind of root that we get our word disciple from, uh, meaning disciple and apostle. Sound teaching, this is just signifying when, they will not endure. This is written in what we call the middle voice. That, that means that there's something that you're doing to yourself. That's middle voice. There's something you're doing to yourself. And what, you, what are you doing to yourself? You're removing yourself from solid, good teaching. Now, the question is, why would somebody do that? Well, he goes on. He says, but according to their own desires, alaikatatas idias, from idiot, by the way. <laughs> but according to your own desires, epithumias, your own desire, to themselves goes with, and in the Greek, you know, we can get into how the order goes, but they will gather to themselves. They will gather to themselves teachers that ask loose, Having an itching ear. Now, two things. One, this word here is only found one time in the entire New Testament. It means heap up. Heap up. 
Gather, 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 gather. Okay, heap up. Imagine uh, in Zimbabwe, the women would go out and get the sticks. They would put them on their heads and they would just walk for miles with these heap of sticks. So they're gathering, gathering, gathering. What do they gather to themselves? Teachers, and then we've got another word that only appears one time in the New Testament. And it's a word for if you have an itch, you just want somebody to come along and scratch it. You know, when my back's itching and Robin comes up, it's a miracle, he scratches my back. It feels so good, you know, but I want it scratched, but you can't do it. You know, you ever seen a bear get up against a tree and, you know, it's a beautiful thing. They have an itching ear, which means there's something that they desperately want to hear. There's something they want to hear. It's an itch. Oh, please tell me this. So they gather to themselves, ha, according to their own desires. Oh, man. So in other words, what he's saying is there's going to come a season when people will gather around them teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. And they will be very good at heaping those teachers around. And I just wonder sometimes because, you know, in, in the time this is written, it would be hard to heap teachers. But now with the internet, I wonder sometimes if this is not what the gospel, this is not what Paul, did, is this what he saw that would happen one day when you had access to so much teaching, you would just gather and heap up teachers that agree with you. Then he said, okay, so middle voice, you remove yourself from teaching and then you turn away. This is Apostre suksen, which is a word uh, that we get our word apostasy from. So you turn away from good teaching. You leave good teaching. That's active voice. And then you will be diverted to something, to myth, mythos, to legend. Now, why is this important? Here's what all of this says to the, to the person who's looking at the Greek in different voice and is trying to determine what is the message. It's a simple one, really. Three stages. The first thing you do is you start looking. You don't like the word of God because it's convicting you. You don't like it because it's not popular in culture. You don't like it because in your mind, things shouldn't be that way. So the first thing you do is you leave that kind of teaching. And then you still want to consider yourself still in the fold, so you find for yourself teachers who agree with you. You have an itch that needs to be scratched. And so after you do that, you do find the teachers. You move away from more solid teaching till ultimately, again, that's active voice, till ultimately you move into passive voice, which means you're believing myths. But you didn't set out to believe myths. It is a natural progression when you move away from good teaching. You'll end up in myth and legend. You end up insane. Now, just quickly, we did that okay. We made some good time there. You with me still? I haven't lost you, right? Listen, this is where, this is where the rubber hits the road. I find one huge takeaway from this passage and three steps to avoid. And the first is the major takeaway, and it's this. If you refuse to listen to sound teaching, you will begin to act in a certain way which will lead to the embracing of myths. It's a digression. Where are we in America now but here? Let's talk about the secular world first. There can be no doubt that this nation, no matter where you stand, was founded on Judeo-Christian values. Honesty, integrity, character, endurance, even hard work, dedication, and commitment come out of the idea that do everything as if you're doing it unto the Lord. But we have moved away from those values and have begun to embrace myths, ironically, that lead to the devaluing of all humanity. That's what's uncanny. We're believing in myths that will cause our own destruction. 
What you have now is a whole culture in America that is not about people, but about ideologies. And we separate in tribes based on that ideology. And the most popular ideology of the past probably 50 years has been there is no God. How many of you know the name Francis Crick? Francis Crick is the co-discoverer of the structure of DNA. So he's, he's got it going on intellectually. In 1962, he was a Nobel Prize winner. And he was asked about origin. Somebody said, you know, you're so smart. Tell us, how did we all get here? You've, you've discovered the structure of DNA, amazing. Tell us how we all got here. And with a friend of his, he came up with the idea of directed panspermia. He said, well, it's obvious. Aliens came and dropped spores on this planet, and that's how we all got here. Now, there is not one shred of proof for this. He said, nature cannot simultaneously invent two mutually interdependent elements of life. Agreed, must be an intelligent designer, must be a god. But he would rather believe in aliens coming from another world than he would God, because he has a pre-commitment to a no-God system. Isn't it amazing that somebody would rather believe in aliens than the miraculous nature of the divine nature? Folks, do you realize, and I, I, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but that's like, that's like you and me walking down the beach and we come across something handwritten in the sand that says, Jeff Bynes was here. And suddenly you look at me and you say, I wonder how that got there. Well, it's obvious somebody, you don't, might, you don't know who, but somebody came and wrote that in the sand, right? Unless you have a pre-commitment to myth or the fantastical, you might then say, well, it's obvious. There's obviously a whale or a big fish and a couple of his friends came and drew this in the sand. As a matter of fact, people in Francis Crick's day knew that this was ridiculous, but they still tried to defend him. And here's what they said, and I quote, the truth is that directed panspermia does not detract from Crick's thinking overall. See, the fact you have to say that means you know there's a problem. Quite the contrary, it reveals the powerful workings of a theoretical, incisive, and restless mind, eager for rational answers, even unconventional ones. See, what that should say is, eager for rational answers, even if they're irrational. That's totally irrational, it's preposterous. But the ideas, unfortunately, have consequences. An atheistic evolution leads to the devaluing of the sacredness of humanity and to the loss of meaning and purpose in life. If there's no God, there's no hope, there's no meaning, there's no purpose, there's no morality. In fact, in Australia, one of the most uh, secular societies, Australia's number one cause of death between age 15 and 24 is suicide. They're taking their own lives. And the Humanist Society in Victoria has decided they applied and want to teach religion education in the schools. Oh yeah, but they want to teach religious education and their main thesis is there is no God. The atrocities of humanity begin in the classroom and the lecture halls long before they eventuate in the streets. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. Till you settle the big questions in your life, is this the revelation of God? Is this the word of God? Until you settle in your mind, whether it is or it is not, 
you'll fluctuate back and forth and you will be the God of God. You will determine morality. You will determine on the basis of your feelings what should be right and what should be wrong. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.